Well, I'm not going to be long-winded this morning. Oh, wow, I thought I was only going to go whoosh. No, just, I've, I've learned not to be long-winded over times. I used to like preach. I could preach for like an hour, an hour and a half. A lot of that was just like, that, that's, not, that's not impressive. That's just a lot of fluff. It takes more to say less with anointing than it does to say a lot. Well, fluff. <laughs> and we don't want fluff. We want the real. We want the genuine. And this morning, we're starting a new series, and I hope, you know, with, with this, I want you to be blessed. We're so grateful for everyone that's visiting with us this morning and, and the home folk. Um, we're starting a new series called No Other Name. No Other Name. And the whole purpose of this is really found in, in you know, in Proverbs or in, in, in Psalms, where it says, you know, um, those who know your name will put their trust in you. This is, what, this is the whole point of this whole series. We want to teach and we want to know who God is even more so that we can trust him more. You got to know someone to trust them, right? So we thought, man, no better way to start on Easter Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, than with the name that is above all names. Because in Jesus, he embodies the fullness of God. He, he embodies every name. And we'll kind of go in details of different names of God through the next several weeks. But we're going to start with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus Christ. So uh, you should see it up on the screen, but... Uh, the scripture I wanted to look at, and I just alluded to it, is Psalms 9:10. This is going to be our main scripture for this series, Psalms 9:10, and it says this: "Those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you." I'll say it again: "Those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord." have not forsaken those who seek you. There's a couple things in this scripture already. There's a, there's a knowing, there's an experience. To know, this is just not like a knowing I have knowledge of. This is I have knowledge of and I have experienced. It's more than just I have you know, a mental assent to or I heard about it. No, I've experienced. Those who experience your name. You know, the name deals with uh, really a character and a nature. You know, when you, you look at somebody and you can see them, um, I'll give my brother-in-law Patrick here. I look at Patrick and I see him and I, I know his name Patrick, but when someone says, says Patrick to me, I can see his face, but I do more than just see his face. I don't just know about him. I've experienced his character. I've been with him for a long time. We've been through good things, bad things. You know, we walk through life together. And this is a loyal man. I know him as someone who is loyal. I know who's someone who is steadfast. I know him as someone who, who, who can get the job done, who will be there. He's faithful. And this is what God wants for us. He wants us to know him. He wants us to experience his faithfulness. And there's a promise into it. It says, when you know him, you're going to trust him. And for in you, O Lord, you will not forsaken those who seek you. You won't forsake them. You won't leave them. You won't abandon them. That's his promise. Another scripture in Proverbs 18.10 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it, or really into him, and they are safe. Now, there's many names, you know, someone may even ask, like, why does God have so many names? I mean, if you're new, if you didn't know that, there's a lot of different ways to kind of describe, 
you know, I kind of Googled it because I didn't have time to go through like everything and write down everything that the Bible says you know about. So I was like, let me just Google how many names are really out there. I, I know a good bit myself. But they say, it was actually, I got the resources on christiananswers.net. It says there are over 950 names and titles for God in Scripture. Man, that's a lot. Man, that, that's a long time to get to know that guy, right? But why, do we have, why does God have so many names? Why, why does he need so many? Why can't he just be known as God? You know, uh, the Hebrew word for God is, is Elohim. And, you know, there's actually, um, you know, in, whenever they even refer to other gods in Scripture, it can be the same name. And God will not be, dis, you know, distinguished with other gods. He is a God above gods. He's distinguished all by himself. But the reason he has so many names or so many descriptions like this is to help us to better understand and experience who he really is. Names are descriptive and they describe. Now, I wanted to do an illustration this morning. I'm kind of looking. The two guys that I was hoping that would be here are not here this morning. So I'm going to ask Patrick, could you, would you come up and stand over here if you don't mind? He didn't know I was going to do this. Um, and where, how far is, oh, there's Dan. Dan, you come up here, buddy, if you don't mind. I can do this because they're on the board too, so I just kind of, I'll hear about it at the next meeting. Just kidding. <laughs> I wanted to give a demonstration as we're kind of going into this. On Easter morning, you know what I could use the most? I could use a hug. I could use a hug. Can I have a hug? Is that okay? Thank you. Can I have a hug, Dan? Appreciate it. You guys can sit down. What is that all about? Man, a pastor is needy. Right? No, you know, there's different experiences that we have, and I use that to kind of illustrate, you know, some of this can go back to some things in, in ways to our own fathers, um, you know, and how we experience things. God wants us to experience him in a great way. And uh, I know Pat's not a hugger, but I, uh, you know, he don't like hugging me as much. Anyhow, but he hugs his family, he hugs his wife, he hugs his kids, he'll hug my kids. I mean, they're his uncle, so he hugs my kids. He gives, I see that him give them a, a good hug. So it's not that he's not a hugger, he just don't like hugging. No, just me, just kidding. <clears throat> he just don't like, you know, necessarily male hugs, but I'm comfortable with that. And I use that as a description. It's not, not saying anything about Patrick or Dan. Um, you know, and if you want, uh, you know, one of the huggers, I believe is probably one of the best huggers in, in our church. Well, Bill would be one. I should have called Bill. Bill a great hugger. I mean, you just kind of, he just, when he, he just wraps around you. John Crone is another one. Whenever, he just, you just fall, you're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. John can hug. You know, and I, I had a, a friend back in Florida, at our church in Florida. Um, his name was Tony Vasquez, and uh, he could hug. And it wasn't just, I mean, it's just, it just sounds kind of weird, like he could hug, but I felt the love of the Father when he hugged me. It wasn't just like a hug. It's like when I got hugged by him, I, I could feel God's anointing. I could feel God's presence. I felt like I was getting a hug from the Father. And if I really needed that, you know, tangible way, I could just go, hey, Tony, give me a hug, man. I could really use it. And he would, one of those guys just grab a hold of you and it's like, it's okay to stay there. Yep, yep, ah, nestle in, amen, in a good way, praise the Lord. I know we got a weird society right now. But we all experience God in different ways. But God wants us to be comfortable with who he is. He wants us to be comfortable coming to him. He wants us to be able to embrace him. And he loves us so much, that's why Jesus came. You know, 
Those who experience God, like thinking about that embrace, those who experience God, they trust God. How many can say that this morning? You know, you've had some experiences with God, and because of that, you trust him in those areas. There's other areas we may be learning how to trust him more, but we trust him. And the more we come to know him, the more we trust him. Jesus came so that everyone could have the chance to experience God. He came so that everyone could have the chance to experience God. It says this in John, the book of John. This is in the, in the Bible, one of the Gospels. It says, John chapter 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. These are Jesus' words. Jesus is the way, so he came to make a way for us to go back to the Father. And I wanna take you through some scriptures here and just kinda set us up for some things because we need to keep that in focus that Jesus came to bring us back to God because Adam, if you didn't hear who he was, he kinda messed it up. He was the the first man that God created. He formed him from the dust of the ground. He breathed his breath of life into him and Adam became a living soul, became a living being. He was perfect before God. He, he, he was without sin, and then God gave him a will, obviously, to be able to choose, and he chose to disobey God, and because of that, he died. And he didn't just die physically right then. He was separated from God in his spirit. He was alive in spirit, and when he disobeyed, he became a dead spirit. God really kind of, you know, taking his spirit back, so to say, that connection was lost, And every person that was born on the face of the earth since Adam is born with a dead spirit. Even though we have the breath of God in us that gives us life, we're born disconnected from him. And that wasn't good enough for God the Father. He didn't want us to be separated from him. He wanted us to come back to him. And that's why he made a plan on the very day that Adam sinned, God had already orchestrated a plan for Jesus to come and bring us back to him. But I'm going to read this. This will be my longest portion of scripture. I'm just going to read it from Philippians chapter two, verse number six. And it says this, though he, talking about Christ, was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a servant and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's created beings in heaven. Angels worship Jesus. Us created beings here on the earth. Those who have departed, who are under the earth right now uh, in a place of really eternal, uh, eternal separation from God. We know it is hell. He says, every name will, every, every, uh, the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every, everyone on earth, uh, under the earth and in heaven and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But because Jesus, as God, took on human flesh, because it, it had to happen. There was no other way that it had to happen. I was talking with Caleb this morning, and um, 
you know, Jesus, he, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, we just celebrated, you know, going through Good Friday when he gave his life on the cross. He asked the Father, if there is another way, please, let's do that. But it wasn't. He, he had to come in flesh. He had to die on the cross the way that he did in order to be able to make a way for us to come back to the Father. And because of that, the Bible says here, because he humbled himself even to death, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him a name above every name. Now, there's something interesting here because he gave him a name even above all the other names of God. All those different names and titles, he gave him a name that's above all names. And, you know, for you Bible scholars out there, you can see this in Psalms 138 too because God says, I magnified my word above all my name. Jesus was the word. I magnify my word above all my name. Look what it says about Jesus and, and kind of this him embellishing the name above all names. Here's Colossians, another book in the Bible. It says, in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness, that's all the names of God, all the descriptions of God, the nature of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Colossians 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. One translation says he's the divine portrait. Those out there, you like a... Any, any photographers out there? Jesus is the divine portrait of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 says he is the radiance of God's glory, his character, and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples in John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How beautiful that Jesus came to do that. Jesus came so that everyone could have the choice to experience God. Now, there's, there's a principle known as the principle of choice, which says this. When you say yes to one thing, you are also saying no to something else. When you make a choice for one thing, you're also making a choice for something else. When you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to another. So therefore, each choice contains a reward and a sacrifice. Jesus made the choice to come to earth Live a perfect life because he wasn't born into sin. Even though he was born into a sinful world, he himself has never sinned. We don't even know what that's like until we experience him. When he takes our conscience that, you know, and inflicts us of the wrongs and the things that we have done and to be, you know, separated from God and he makes us new in him. But he made that choice to come and with that choice there was a sacrifice that he had to make. Paul says this, I love this scripture, especially at this time, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, the apostle, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. See, God just don't do things, even though there can be some things that seem to be spontaneous. God always declares things way in advance of what he's going to do, and then he does it. 
He declared long ago that Jesus was going to come. He declared long ago that Jesus was going to suffer. It actually says in uh, it's either Isaiah uh, uh, 52 or 53 that it pleased the Father to crush Jesus on the cross. That doesn't make him a bad father. He knew that by doing this that he was going to make a way for many people to be able to have a choice to come back to God. But it was the only way. It had to happen. But Paul said, this is what I'm telling you, that Christ, he died for our sins. Just as the scripture has said, he was buried and he was raised again on the third day. This third day is what we're celebrating today, that Jesus rose again from the grave. You see God in creation. The Bible talks about how he uses his fingers and his hand to make all creation. And he, and he formed man with, a, with his hands and sculpting him. But when he raised Jesus from the dead, it talks about God using his arm, greater strength to pull him out of the grave. And he did. Because one scripture says that was resonating with me last night. It was impossible for death to hold him in the grave. Amen. Isn't that awesome? So there's kind of a problem here because that's why Jesus came. It said Jesus died for our sins. Sin is the problem. Sin separates us from God. It's, it's, see, God, God created us to be whole, you know, our wills to be whole, our souls, our bodies, our spirits to be whole. And whenever Adam sinned, he was disconnected in spirit from God. So God's like, that's not good enough. Because of that, we're prone to sin. We're prone to go our own way. The Bible says in Isaiah, each one of us is like sheep that have gone astray. They're prone. Sheep are just prone to wander off. That's what we do. That's what Jesus came for, to give us a way, to pave the way by which we can come back to the Father, to shepherd us in this life as the good shepherd that he is. Are you with me this morning? So sin separates us from God. Therefore, sin had to be dealt with in order for us to experience God. And the only one that could destroy sin was God through the body and the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 4.25 says this, Jesus was handed over to die because of our sin. Let that sit in for, let it just sink for a minute. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. And not just things that we have done because there's, there's a sin that we do when we commit and are disobedient to God and we're going our own way. There's that sin that we do, but there's just the nature of sin. You know, someone once said, I don't know if it was Billy Graham, you know, you, you're, you're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because we're born as sinners. And then Jesus comes, and we're no longer sinners. We're sinners that are saved by grace. He don't see us as separated from him anymore. He sees us connected together with him. But Jesus was handed over because of our sin, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. That's why he was raised to life, in order to be able to make us right with God. And there may be some people in here this morning, and sometimes, you know, the enemy can come in and speak different things, but, you know, we need to ask ourselves these questions frequently. What do we really believe about Jesus? Do we really believe that he died for our sin? Do we really believe that he was buried? Do we really believe that he rose again? 
Connection with God is determined on these factors, and it's not something you can, you can ascend to just in your own you know, reasoning of your mind. It takes a believing in your heart. Reasoning is done with your mind, but believing is done in the heart. So I want to kind of give you three scenarios right here. If there's anybody here, or just maybe you can help this out whenever you're, uh, you're talking to somebody, you're ministering to somebody, loving on somebody with Jesus. I want to give you three different ways to be thinking about this. One of them is, is statistically thinking about Jesus. Is he really who he says he is? I did a study on this years ago, uh, even in this church. I, th- I think we were in the other building when we did this, but um, thinking about Jesus as being the Messiah and what he was going to do, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 specific prophecies about Jesus, and all of them are, were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Of the 300 prophecies, 60 are major messianic prophecies that could only be fulfilled by one person. These 60 of them, they would have to be fulfilled by one person only. And of those 60 major prophecies, there are 270 different details. Hold on a second. The possibilities of one person just fulfilling eight of those 60 is one times 10 to the 17th power. I don't even know what, I had to look it up. What is that? One to times 10 to the 17th power. That's like a one and then 17 zeros. And it's this, out of, it's a, where is it at? 100,000 trillion. One out of 100,000 trillion could fulfill just eight of those prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled them all. This is just statistically. Here's a, here's a draw, draw a picture. I heard this years ago. I've used it a couple times. But if you took, you know, we got everything's bigger in Texas. Where's our Texans at? They got Paul's over there. Uh, if you take the state of Texas, which is just under 269,000 square miles, right? If you take the, the state of Texas and you covered it in silver dollars, two feet thick, and you took one of those silver dollars and you painted it red and you hid it among all those other silver dollars that covered the whole state of Texas two feet thick, and then you had a blind man in a helicopter hovering over the state of Texas, and he gave direction to the helicopter pilots, over here, go left, go right, go right here, go down, and he reached down and grabbed that one red silver dollar out of all those silver dollars, That's what it would look like for one person to fulfill only eight of the 60 messianic prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled them all. And if you don't believe me, you can go back in Scripture, do your own research. But the people that I've, you know, come to admire that have gone back to try to disprove the Scriptures are one of the strongest Christians now. (laughs) Praise the Lord. So then we have, you know... Kind of like mathematically speaking, because statistically it deals with number, but it's not just mathematics. There was a, a, uh, he was a theologian back then. He was also a philosopher. Um, I think he was in the medical field too. I'd have to look that up to make sure. Um, But his name was Blaise Pascal. 
Blaise Pascal. If you don't know who he is, he was a mathematician back in the day. He actually, you know, everything that he, he found out that everything is mathematical. I mean, to the creation of flowers, you know, to bees making their, their, their uh, honeycombs and their net, everything is mathematical. You can see everything mathematically, even the colors. Why, why certain colors look good together is mathematics. He's the one that brought that up. He's the one that really started the color wheel. When you, your painters and stuff out there, like, wow, all these colors look so good. He's the one that mathematically came, obviously by direction of the Lord, that the colors, why they match together. It's mathematics. And he said this to people that were asking, you know, what if there's not a heaven? What if there's not a hell? He said, mathematically speaking, it's better for you to believe that Jesus exists and to die and find out that he didn't than to not believe that he exists and to die and find out that he did, and he was exactly who he said he was. I had a friend of mine in Florida was going through a rough time, and uh, we sat at a Taco Bell Pizza Hut kind of like a little thing. It was a Taco Pizza Delco. It was kind of like a little carry-out delivery place. They had a lot of them are in Florida like that. They're kind of mixed together. Sometimes I have three different ones. And we're sitting there, and he was going through a rough time in his marriage at the time, and through all this, he began to ask questions. What if God's not real? What if God's not real? I didn't know, I didn't know about Blaise Pascal at this time, or I would have thrown that on him. But he's like, what if God's not real? What if I die and there's nothing, there's just nothing? You know, because I'm believing God now, and I'm walking through some things, and it, it's tough. God never promised that life would be easy. Look what Jesus had to go through in order to bring us back to him. He promises to be with us in this life and to help us whenever it comes to the life that's beyond this life, that we'll be able to be with him. And there's things for us to do with him. We're not just going to be fat little angels up there with wings going, ooh, no, we're going to be working with God and advancing his kingdom because we're coming back to this earth. And he'll establish his kingdom here on this earth. And we'll continue what he started from the beginning. But he asked me that question. As I sat there, I, I, I thought... And I said, you know what? Because he was talking about, at that time, cheating on his wife, just having a heart. He's like, I'm, I'm really just, you know, things going on. And I was like, brother, let me tell you, if God is not real, what have I given up on this earth by, not, by serving him? You know, I, I mean, I could go out and do drugs and, and get drunk every night. I could go out and sleep around. What did I really give up? I mean... I'm living a, a, a pure life in that way. Even if God doesn't, it doesn't exist, I still feel better about myself in this way than to think that he doesn't exist and then die and find out that I was wrong. And then Blaze says, mathematically speaking, 